This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at uctv.tv slash careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and those in career transition bridge to better employment. Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. Um, before we get started, I can give you a quick overview of my research program and the methods I take and the goals of my research more broadly. Um, I started studying gender inequality in my doctoral program at Carnegie Mellon, um, but before that I was interested in studying these issues from when I was a student at Wellesley College. Um, the reason why I'm so interested in studying gender inequality is because despite the fact that we've made a lot of progress in society more broadly towards equity, um, gender equity, there still is a lot more progress still to be made. These issues we've seen stalling in terms of pay gaps and inequity, persistent inequity in career advancement rates. Um, and so my, the goal of my research program is to continue to investigate what, why are these gaps persisting. Um, I do that through studying both formal and informal processes in organizations and careers. And so what I mean by that is formal processes are these gatekeeping pro procedures that we have, hiring decisions, promotion decisions, task assignments, things like that. Um, and there's evidence that discrimination can occur there as well as more implicit biases. And so I have a paper that looks at how even when women have reached high levels of qualification, they still face different types of negative biases about their career commitment. Um, I also study informal processes. So these are all of the other ways that help you advance in your career beyond the formal steps you take through hiring and promotion. So the main focus is on mentorship and sponsorship. This is when senior colleagues lend their time, expertise, and social capital to help you develop skills, help you develop your network, use their social capital to then identify career opportunities for you that help push you up the organizational ladder. And research shows that while mentorship is really important, sponsorship is really what uh, is impactful in terms of career advancement. And so that's why I study both of those processes. Um, I take a multi-methods approach, which means I do both quantitative and qualitative data analysis. So I do both behavioral experiments, surveys in the field. I also do in-depth interviews with leaders with the goal of gaining both deeply contextualized insights from people working within organizations, as well as broader, more generalizable findings um, from larger data sets. And I find that combination is really important if you want to understand systemic issues, but also develop targeted solutions because organizations all have their own idiosyncrasies and nuances that need to be taken into account. Great. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, of course. We learned about your work as we were do working on the Chancellor's Advisory Committee on the Status of Women, and it just seemed so relevant to that work, but I think to our work collectively, just um, you know, some of the things you mentioned are probably things that people are, are struggling with. Um, every day. So I wanted to start off by just asking you, um, you mentioned that you initially got interested in this area of research in undergraduate. And I think a lot of us who do research, you have to find your particular niche. Um, and there's often some kind of inspiration or spark that gets you to there. And so I wonder what that spark was that kind of set you on the path. Yeah, so in undergrad, um, I actually thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. <laughs> so that was years ago. Um, and most of my research training was actually focused on developmental and clinical psychology. Um, it wasn't until my senior year that I realized that that wasn't a good fit for me. Um, but the uh, really impactful part about going to Wellesley is that all of your courses are designed in a way to encourage you 
to question the way that history is written and stories are told and to think about the fact that people's voices who have not historically been considered, we should center that in all of our conversations. Um, and so my you know, education at Wellesley did give me that foundation to be thinking about the world in that way. Um, but my senior year in college, I decided I didn't want to pursue clinical training. And so I ended up going to work in market research. This gets to your question. <laughs> um, and and that, um, that firm, it was a great experience. It allowed me to develop applications to my research abilities that um, I didn't realize you could apply. It told me about the field of organizational behavior, which I didn't know was a field until then. Um, but the one instance that always... Uh, sparked my interest in gender inequality was um, I had this fantastic mentor and sponsor at the firm. Um, she never hesitated to bring me to meetings to help me to allow me to shadow, um, gain off additional experience. Um, and so she provided both mentorship and sponsorship. And so I had a really great role model of how impactful um, receiving career support from a senior female leader can look like. Um, but the one instance that always sticks out in my mind is I remember in one meeting, um, she brought the coffee to the meeting. And that was something pretty common that most people do. Um, but I noticed it happened more than once. And this was despite us having a, um, a receptionist whose job was to do the catering for the meetings. Um, and so I asked her why. And I remember her saying, oh, you know, someone asked me to bring it, so I just thought I would agree to it. And at the time, I remember thinking, I guess that's fine. Um, but something never quite sat well with me about it. Um, I, I didn't understand why one of the few women in the room was the one bringing the coffee to the meetings. Um, and I didn't learn until much later at Carnegie Mellon where Linda Babcock does work there on what's called non-promotable tasks. And this this idea that there are all of these little jobs that really anyone can do within organizations, things like um, you know, putting together social events, bringing catering to meetings that help the organization function more generally, um, but women are disproportionately likely to be asked to do these functions. And the issue is that they don't contribute directly to your advancement. That's why they're called non-promotable tasks. And so at the time, I didn't know what that word was, but it was that observation that sparked my interest in studying what gender inequality looks like today, because we've made a lot of progress from say the experiences of um, my mom when she worked in finance and consulting you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, and so we've made a lot of progress since then, but um, we still have more work to do, clearly. <laughs> That's cool that a female mentor was somebody who really sparked your yes, path. Yes, she was a fantastic example of how to be a good sponsor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had the same experience. I was originally intending to do something else in college, but then I had this amazing chemistry mm -hmm. professor, female chemistry professor who just... Wow, like just wowed me and also became a mentor and a sponsor. I like that distinction. I think that's mm -hmm. really helpful, actually. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's really important looking back, how important. And sometimes it's just a small thing that, that really can set you on. Yes, and it's actually path. particularly impactful in STEM fields. Like you mentioned chemistry. Yes. There's lots of research coming out that shows when fields are stereotypically um, male-dominated, um, having a sponsor, you know, a highly tenured female sponsor and mentor can be really impactful for junior women's advancement. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so thinking about some of the things you said, we were talking a little bit about historical perspective, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because these are longstanding issues. And so I'd like to hear a little more from you about um, women in the workplace today, gender in the workplace today, and maybe also how it intersects with some other um, identities or even um, age or, or other factors. 
Yeah, so in terms of what is different now is that we still deal with a lot of systemic inequalities. Um, I would see one main difference in comparing, I think, 30, 40, 50 years ago is that overt discrimination is less socially acceptable, which is great progress. I'm glad we've gotten there. Um, and, and so because of that, the traditional things we think of when we hear gender discrimination, we don't see that as much anymore. But it doesn't mean it's not there. It just has changed form. Um, and there are still some very persistent stereotypes and inequalities that um, pervades, like uh, assumptions about career commitment. So the motherhood penalty is a well-documented barrier that women face. It's rooted this in this idea that, um, particularly in America, we have a stereotype that the ideal employee, the ideal worker, is one who's committed to their work above everything else. Um, however, women are still stereotyped to be the primary caregiver in families, regardless of whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, people are less likely to see women as the ideal worker. And this leads to discrimination, hiring, and promotion decisions. Um, and so there are still those, I would call old school discrimination. I mean, the idea that women are still only the primary caregiver is a fairly dated bias, but it still uh, very much impacts women in today's workplace. Um, what you see more of now is a lot of organizations have taken steps to try to make advancements. We see a lot of anti-bias training, a lot of um, policies that try to um, you know, obscure the gender of applicants and all of these things. Um, very mixed evidence as to whether they're actually effective or not. Um, in fact, anti-bias training, the research shows, can lead to backlash, um, particularly racial anti-bias training. Um, and part of the reason is we haven't really addressed the underlying issues. um, And that's going to continue to be a problem in terms of designing effective policies. Um, In terms of intersectionality, you are correct. That definitely plays a role. Um, My research focuses on gender inequality broadly. um, But of course, there's plenty of evidence that shows that women of color are face unique biases in the workplace, um, often much higher uh, standards and uh, more challenging biases than white women face. Um, Interestingly, ageism and gender inequality has received fairly little attention in the research, um, which is a problem. Um, But of the work that I've seen, it shows that older women do face a unique combination of biases um, to reflect the fact that they're no longer seen as the primary caregiver um, and society does not know what to do with them quite in the workplace. Um, And so they experience biases as a result. Um, But that is a a pretty emerging area of research, which is surprising considering it's 2023. Um, But a lot of the intersectionality um, angles on research have only just started reading management. Um, It doesn't mean that other fields like sociology and psychology have not explored these, but in terms of applying it into the workplace, it's still pretty new. It seemed like the issue of age was really relevant to your work because you were talking about the undervaluing of exceptional women. It's often when you get later in your career that you have seen yes. exceptional. But I was also thinking this morning, I was looking something over and I was thinking the more efficient and effective you are in a way, it's possible for you to be like the, it makes your work almost invisible to folks. And so there is this aspect perhaps of maybe women being overlooked. <laughs> the better they are, the more efficient they are, um, more effective. Even. It's possible. Um, of the work I've done, I haven't looked at age particularly, but I have looked at um, rank and tenure within a field which correlates with age, certainly. Um, and in that work, I have uh, I find some evidence that um, high 
highly ranked, highly tenured women um, are actually perceived as exceptional. Mm -hmm. um, because of these growing awarenesses about gender biases, people see highly ranked women and there's an assumption that it was harder for them to get there. Mm. Um, therefore, they must be far more competent than anyone else who did not face these double standards, these unfair biases. Um, however, the application of that exceptionalism effect is it's unclear how far reaching it is. It, they've looked at general perceptions of leaders. I looked at it in terms of how referrals or recommendations for job applications are perceived. Um, however, in terms of more uh, specific workplace interactions, it's less clear how that extends to. Um, and it's interesting because I have another work on um, another paper on overqualification, which shows that overqualified women are more likely to be assumed to be highly committed to the firm compared to overqualified men. Um, and what I mean by firm commitment is it's, it's a theoretical construct in our field, but it captures this idea that the firm, to what extent the firm assumes they will uh, stay at the organization. So, you know, it's kind of the reverse of like, will they leave? Um, overqualified men are seen as a flight risk. Um, what the data I have in some prior work shows is that overqualified men are assumed to think they're too good for jobs that they're overqualified for, and they're just going to jump ship as soon as the next better opportunity comes along. Um, and so people are actually less inclined to hire them compared to men with sufficient qualifications for the job. Um, but people don't have that concern about overqualified women. And it's not that they're never categorized as overqualified. The data shows that they see overqualified women as highly competent, highly qualified for the job, um, but they rationalize their qualifications in a way they don't for men. So they don't see them as a flight risk. They don't worry about retention. They actually rationalize it in a way that the presumption is women value their relationships more in the workplace, so they're less likely to risk those relationships by leaving for the next better opportunity. Um, and of course, these are all rationalizations and um, thought processes that does not speak to women's and men's actual motivations. So what the male and female job candidates are actually thinking, hiring managers don't know. And so these are all their projections onto the candidate. So I think that's a very important distinction is that I'm not claiming that this is what candidates are thinking themselves, but the biases that others are having about their motivations. Um, and so the reason I mention that is that there's an interesting balance there in that on one hand, we see, I have a paper that shows you know highly recommendations from highly tenured women are really impactful, particularly for junior female job candidates. Um, but on the other hand, we also see that overqualified um, female job candidates are assumed to, they're not a flight risk, and presumably the firm is less concerned about having to retain them. Um, and so it's clear that there's not one blanket story about some discounting of competence that can happen, which to date often has been um, the narrative of, you know, women are just assumed to not be smart enough. Um, the data now shows that that does not seem to be the case always and that people do recognize women's competence and qualifications, but it still leads to biases in other ways. So the story has become more complicated now. <laughs> That's all good research is, yes. right? The more you <laughs> dig in, the more you realize there's um, a lot of different yes. questions. Yes, and so. I think as societies become more aware of gender biases, that has complicated the phenomenon as well um, because there's more and more data that shows that people don't want to be biased. People do have generally good motivations. Um, and so they do try to make adjustments based on that. And so that makes how the effect plays out in organizations far more complicated. 
does it also make it hard because people say the thing that they feel that they should say as opposed to saying the thing yes. when you're doing research? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, that is a common problem for people studying all forms of discrimination. So I was talking to a colleague who studies uh, racial discrimination and hiring decisions, and he's faced a similar issue where he did what's called an audit study, which means he created um, resumes and then you actually send them out to organizations and then record a response rates on the resume. So it's a real behavioral test in that way, as opposed to an experimental study where you would get a sense of hiring intentions, but it's not actually a real callback rate, right? Because it's all done within the lab. Um, and he consistently found these biases in the actual audit study application data, but then was struggling to replicate it mm -hmm. within the lab data. And that speaks to a broader issue that we often encounter, that people change their responses if they think you're studying bias because they don't want to be seen as biased, which makes sense. Um, the problem is that if they're still making biased decisions, because these often happen below people's levels of awareness, we're not able to gain a full picture of it based on the data we're collecting. So techniques have emerged to try to get around that, um, but it's, it's a problem. <laughs> Sounds like there are so many different things to study in this area, which is really mm -hmm. exciting. But I wonder if you could um, say either a, sort of a burning question you're working on or you really want to work on something you really want to get to the bottom of, like a direction that your research you'd like it to take. Yeah, so I have um, two, you know, working projects that I have right now that I'm really excited about. Um, one is just starting and the other is a little bit more developed, but the just starting one that uh, is building off of this prior work I mentioned about gendered assumptions about firm commitment and retention. Um, I'm working with some colleagues at the University of Virginia and we're, we want to examine the assumptions that organizations make about how they should go about retaining exceptional women. Um, specifically about whether the um, assumptions about what exceptional women want in retention packages is actually the same as what they actually want. Um, and whether there are any evidence of biases in terms of what types of retention packages are offered. Interestingly, retention is retention packages specifically are challenging to study because they're so idiosyncratic to organizations and to certain fields. Um, and so there isn't great data on um, what these timelines look like, what are common things. Um, we assume pay, you know, bonuses, vacation days perhaps, um, but there's no consistent paper that comes out that says this mm. is the most common uh, formula, I guess, for a retention package. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of work showing that women may be less likely to get equity in these packages, um, but only one paper, actually. And so we wanted to build on that and try to understand a bit more about what's going on there, um, because the packages that people put together are based on what they think they need to give a, a candidate to keep them working at the organization, right? So it speaks to what they believe that candidate values. Um, and so we're interested in understanding what are the differences or gaps between what women actually value and what organizations think they value. Um, so that's one paper. I have another one that's actually purely qualitative field data. I did interviews with leaders in a consulting firm um, about their experiences providing mentorship and sponsorship. Um, and I'm analyzing the data to develop a theory for how this organizational culture, which is highly competitive, anyone who's worked in consulting knows this. <laughs> it's a very, very competitive uh, field and the organizational structure is often very competitive because it's project by project employment. Getting on the right project is really impactful for your career advancement. 
Um, and so I was interested in how these leaders make decisions about advocating for talent to junior employees that they see within the organization. Um, and I find some evidence that um, the highly competitive culture makes an impact, specifically that even among the organization's claims that it values equity and inclusion, it, want, it encourages explicitly leaders to provide mentorship and sponsorship. They actually use that terminology, which more and more organizations are using. Um, but they never change the incentive structure. So junior employees and leaders are always incentivized based on performance. The leaders themselves on the performance of their projects that they're leading. Um, and who you choose to mentor and sponsor starts to, you begin to then weigh it against what helps your performance because your performance is the only thing that you're getting mm. incentivized for. Um, and what I see is some evidence that male and female leaders work through what that means for them as leaders, how to be a good leader and, you know, grapple with this tension and in the incentive structure. Um, and they do it in slightly different ways, um, which I won't get into all the details because it's complicated. But I think that that paper is important because it speaks to the fact that organizational initiatives are not sufficient. So organizations having a formal mentoring program that they might have thrown together because they think it's helpful, um, which again, best intentions, um, or maybe they have a networking event or two to try to help junior employees make connections. Um, that doesn't overweigh the issues with incentive structures. If we're never actually incentivizing leaders to provide this type of support, um, you begin to question whether we're actually going to get them to do it. Um, and that speaks to broader issues that have been talked about in the mentorship and sponsorship literature. Researchers have noticed there's a lot of focus on the impact of these support on junior men and women, which is of course important and gives us a lot of information. Um, but there isn't a lot of consensus on how to get male and female leaders to provide this type of support, which is half the equation. And so that's one of the focus that I take when I study career support is focusing on the male and female leaders themselves. But those are two projects that I'm working on. <laughs> it sounds like yeah. it don't really keep you busy, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so we've, we've talked, you've talked a little bit um, about mentorship and sponsorship. And I'm, I'm really curious because I think that, you know, at a university, we have a lot of opportunities to mentor folks who are, we might have opportunity to mentor students, mentor colleagues. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of different opportunities for both men and women to, to mentor colleagues. Um, and yet everyone's different, right? I mean, some differences might be race or ethnicity, but also personality differences. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm wondering for those who really want to be good mentors, but aren't necessarily you know, sure how to go about it. Are there any, anything either from your work or from things that you've, you've read that, that could help people really in, in thinking about how to go about being a good mentor? Yeah, so I think the first thing to uh, differentiate is to be aware of the fact that you can be both a mentor and a sponsor. So when people are looking for career support, you can find a mentor and a sponsor who are two, two different people. You can also find someone who can provide both types of support. Um, and so as leaders, I think it's important for us to recognize that we can also provide both types of support if we see that opportunity. Um, work on mentorship speaks a lot to the fact that it's not just skills development, but it's also social support within the workplace. Um, and that has a large documented impact on people's sense of self-worth within their organizations, their confidence at work. Um, and so I would say as mentors, I'd encourage you to 
focus on skills development, but also focus on the psychological well-being of the people that you are working with. Um, I think often in organizations there's a focus on performance, which I understand, um, but employees are people too, and so focusing on their psychological well-being is important. Um, and I think that relates to the fact that you should also always keep an eye out for sponsorship opportunities. Um, of course, these are more challenging to secure. You have to lobby your reputation, your social capital, to tap your network to try to find these opportunities and secure them for junior employees, um, which can feel a bit riskier um, as leaders. But the research shows it's so important for junior employees' advancement, um, and it's particularly important for junior women. Um, like I said, that paper I talked about before, highly tenured women, um, when they provided recommendations for junior female job candidates, they were the most likely to get hired after that compared to all other gender combinations of uh, recommenders and job candidates. Um, and so even though sponsorship can be harder, I would encourage leaders to always be on eye out for opportunities for junior employees. Um, and then finally, is I would encourage people to not make assumptions about what junior employees or students want. Um, I find, based on my research and my broad read of the inequality literature, is a lot of these issues arise because of assumptions about what people want, what people need, um, and that's a problem. Um, it's, in my opinion, a better approach to talk to junior employees and students about what their goals are, what they want to achieve, and once you have that conversation, then to keep having it, because they could change over time, um, to then take that as your guidance for seeking out opportunities for them, rather than making assumptions about what they do or not want to do. Because you could imagine a scenario where an opportunity does come along, and then a leader says, well, I don't think she wants to do that. Um, there was actually a, um, a leader in the consulting firm that I interviewed that I mentioned earlier um, she said that she was sitting on these promotion meetings um, and they have a partner track a lot like the tenure track. A lot of consulting firms have this. Um, and she disclosed to me that in this meeting, she was talking about a junior female colleague that she had been working with that she wanted to put on the fast track for promotion. And then one of her male colleagues said, oh, she didn't say anything about that. I assume she didn't want to do that. And the woman I was interviewing said, it was strange to me the assumption that a woman wouldn't want to advance in the workplace. Um, it is strange. <laughs> it's a strange <laughs> assumption. Um, and so, and I and I don't think that male colleague meant anything by it. That being said, I do not know who this person is. Um, but my experience has been that often these assumptions are not done with malice. Um, however, they can still be damaging. And so, I would encourage all leaders to constant constantly have a dialogue with your students, your junior employees. Always be aware of what they're looking for, so then you can provide the most targeted opportunities and support for them. I think your your suggestion to really open that conversation is so important because a lot of times I'm thinking, especially of of students in academia who may want to go into industry or may want to go yes. follow a, a sort of non traditional path, and the advisor might be completely happy with that, but they've never had an opportunity to discuss it, and mm -hmm. so the mentee feels like mm, I don't know if this is even okay. Should I? So like opening that conversation could just be like so helpful for yes. uh, the mentee to realize oh. Oh, this is actually okay, you know. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think this also speaks to a larger movement I advocate for personally um, to normalize having these conversations. Uh, my sense uh, from my experience in the workplace and also my read of the research is that 
people hesitate to ask for things um, because they, particularly women, they don't want to be overly assertive because there are yeah. costs to that. Um, they don't want to be labeled bossy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's and as a result, if they're seen as less likely to be asking for them, then there's an assumption that they don't want it, which is like that example that I gave you, um, which may not be true. And so if we normalize the conversation as leaders actually initiating it, then the onus is no longer on the junior employee exclusively to advocate mm-hmm. for themselves. You know, of yeah. course, they do have to advocate for themselves. I would encourage all junior women to always advocate for yourself. Um, but we can't expect women to solve discrimination on their own. That speaks to this larger issue that I've seen in organizations across the literature is that a lot of the solutions focus on how can we empower women, um, which is fine and it's helpful. Yes, um, these things can be very helpful. They give us a lot of information about barriers that women are facing, um, but it doesn't fix the system. Mm-hmm. We need to develop systemic solutions. Um, and so when I say start that conversation, it's actually speaking to a broader process of let's normalize open conversations between leaders and junior employees. Let's normalize conversations about what you want out of a mentorship relationship, what you want out of a sponsorship relationship, rather than it feeling weird to ask about mm-hmm. it. Um, I fully recognize to all of those watching that it may feel weird for you to do this, um, the only advice I can give is to be as genuine and authentic to yourself as possible. Um, and there is research that shows actually that when you ask people for advice, they like you more they, because they think you're more competent. <laughs> so let that take you as, as you will. Um, but but yes, yeah, so that's why I also try to maintain the focus on what leaders can do to try to fix that system. <laughs> I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to come straight out and ask about um, misconceptions about gender in the workplace and if there are any mm-hmm. things that you've, you've come across it either in your studies or things that you've read that, um, that you'd like to maybe debunk or, or talk about. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think the one that I, so I do not face this as much among researchers. Um, however, when I speak about these issues more broadly, um, Interestingly, the one that I face that I continue to be surprised by is this assumption that sexism isn't a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it's, you know, this isn't mad men anymore. We're, we treat we treat women better than that, and is the expectation I think people have. Um, and this gets back to what we talked about earlier about how it's still there. It looks different, and so because it's changed form and it's more implicit and less explicit. What the reactions I've gotten is that it's not a problem anymore, um, which really surprises me because you talk to any woman in the workplace and I guarantee you either they themselves or someone they know has faced an issue. Um, and, and that's, you know, not even including sexual harassment, which is a whole different, um, field of problems. Um, and so that's the biggest one that I, I'm surprised by. Um, I believe, I would theorize that part of the issue is that we're now more aware of these biases, which is great. Um, and because we've had these broader discussions about it, like Me Too, um, that can lead people to feel like, well, it was talked about, so now it's fixed. Or my organization introduced a policy, so now it's fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the problem is not solved that easily. Um, and so I would encourage people, if they encounter anyone who is of that belief, to try to dissuade them of that um, because the concern is that if they think it's done, efforts to fix it will become less urgent. Um, and so that's the one that I've faced. 
I think the other one is that um, unconscious bias training works. It doesn't, um, not consistently. Uh, the research shows that, yes, we have unconscious biases, but the trainees that exist very rarely address them in a consistent way. Um, as I mentioned before, they can actually often lead to backlash where people have greater uh, unconscious biases than before they took the training. Um, and there's many complicated reasons as to why that backlash happens. Um, and there's research out there. Um, Alexander Caleb is a great researcher in this area who's looking, and Frank Dobbin, who's looking at um, how to design effective diversity and equity trainings. Um, but it gets back to this idea that you have to develop a systemic solution. And an unconscious bias training is cheap and easy for organizations to implement. But all it does is communicate to employees that we think you are the problem. We think mm. you are the biased ones. Um, which people don't like being told that. It doesn't make them feel good, makes them react against it. Um, and so that strategy is not a long-term effective solution, even though it seems to be very popular. So. Yeah, I wonder, um, I don't know that your research really ex speaks to exactly this, but um, thinking about things like blind searches. And I mean, I know in orchestras, for instance, that they have um, made auditions be blind so that um, people are behind a screen when they are playing their music so that you're just listening to music. And I um, I know that you have to be careful to control for like the person walking down the, the aisle, for instance, because a woman yeah. might, may sound different than a man walking down the aisle. Um, but controlling for all of that, that has actually really helped um, mm -hmm. improve the number of women in orchestras. And I don't, I don't want to throw one thing out there as like, this is the fix or anything, but if they're, I mean, because it, it sounds like we're talking a lot about, you know, fixing people versus fixing institutions. And this mm -hmm. is kind of like, we recognize people have these biases. So maybe let's have some practices where we admit to our biases as well, but we're saying, oh no, we need something a little bit bigger in order to maybe address this within an organization. Yeah. So this is not to say that there are not easy solutions out there. The one, the example you showed with, you know, more or less anonymizing the screening process for orchestras, hanging up a sheet is not a ch an expensive solution. Yeah. Yeah. And it was effective in that case. Um, and I don't do research on anonymizing applications. Um, and so I can't speak to that directly. I would say, though, that these types of solutions are necessary, but ultimately not sufficient for a couple of reasons. One is that when you anonymize applications to gender, to race, to disability status, to all of these things, um, it removes some biases. But the issue is that it does not always account for then the um, opportunity to achievement ratio. Is like, I think that's what UCSD actually uses when they talk about faculty members' achievements in the wake of COVID, is that we need to consider what someone's opportunity was mm -hmm. to, and then what they achieved based on those opportunities. And so if it was harder for someone to accomplish what they accomplished based on their opportunities, we should acknowledge that. And sometimes knowing their identity in terms of where they are from, what their demographic uh, demographics are, if that helps us make that assessment, then perhaps that information should be included. But that's a very complicated process. There's no one fix. And so I would, I would not prescribe an organization to do one or the other. Mm -hmm. I would encourage organizations to consider that this is a deeply complicated scenario and blanket solutions are generally not going to get to where you want to go all the way. Um, the other reality is that those types of solutions only work at hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. Once you're in the organization mm -hmm. for a promotion decision, getting assigned to a big project, 
there's very few ways that you can truly anonymize that process um, because people already know who everyone is. The pools of people being considered are often very small mm -hmm. when then it becomes almost impossible to truly anonymize the people involved. Um, and so it's, again, it helps with some situations, but ultimately is not sufficient for solving other problems. And so I'd con uh, encourage organizations to continue to uh, work with researchers to try to develop, uh, you know, customized solutions. Because again, each industry is going to have unique hiring and promotion mm -hmm. scenarios, idiosyncrasies, and you can design customized solutions for that. Requires more effort, um, might be more expensive, but it comes down to what your goals are as a leader and as an organization. What kind of leader do you want to be? This is what I actually, I talk to my MBAs about, my students, is um, yes, it will often be harder and more expensive to implement truly effective equity and inclusion practices. Um, but you should ask yourself, what kind of leader do you want to be? Do you want all of your employees to have equal opportunity and to feel included? If so, then you have to take the extra steps. If mm -hmm. you don't because it's too expensive, um, you know, I realize that not all leaders have, you know, say over the entire organizational budget, I recognize there are constraints. Um, but generally, you should think about what you're willing to advocate for. If you want to be a leader that gives people equal opportunities, then you need to take steps to try to do that. Um, and this speaks to organizations more broadly. What kind of firm do you want to run? Do you want to run one where people don't have equal opportunity or maybe sort of have equal opportunity? Um, do you want one where people sort of feel included? Um, or do you want one where people actually feel included? Um, and if so, then you have to take the steps accordingly to achieve that goal, um, even if it's expensive. Yeah, and there are probably a lot of hidden costs, right? Because there are hidden costs to losing someone, especially sure. somebody who's been there for a long time because there's so much institutional knowledge and retraining the new person. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you can't really put a price tag on how that affects morale if that person was well-loved. And like yes. all of these different things that are really, okay, maybe it's expensive to do this, but in, at the end of the day, maybe it actually saves money down, mm -hmm. down the road. Yeah, and that's even kind of teasing apart uh, broader policy changes from, you know, supporting specific leaders within the organization through efforts to retain them. Um, I don't know as much about the turnover literature because it's not my expertise. I do know of what I've read that organizations frequently do not account for the cost of turnover in the same way they account mm -hmm. for other losses. Um, it is more challenging for them to do so. It, it often doesn't go through the same psychological framework, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, and so firms don't think about the cost in that way. And so they, you are correct in that they are hidden. Um, it does not mean they are not there. Mm -hmm. um, McKinsey's Women in the Workplace report came out this year. It's for those of you who are not familiar, every year they do a very comprehensive survey of the status of gender equity across different industries. Um, it's very comprehensive, highly recommend it, reading it if you're interested in this type of uh, uh, research. And they often will identify trends that characterize that year of data collection. And since this one you know, is coming after a lot of the peak of COVID-related uh, work restrictions and things like that, um, and the, you know, the higher, perceived higher rate of people leaving their organizations to move to another job, they found that women were, uh, you know, expressed greater uh, likelihood to change jobs. And some of the reasons they looked to was a lack of flexibility, things that I would argue could be solved mm -hmm. by organizations. Um, but they don't, and so the female leaders leave, um, which I would categorize as a loss for that organization. So it's, it's something that I think firms should keep 
uh, in their mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you've been talking, and you just mentioned it now, like different types of organizations have to mm-hmm. be, you know, because th- there's different nuances. The university is a very, the university academia in general, not, mm-hmm. not ours per se, but in general, the university is a very interesting place, right? Because we have these very different types of individuals. We have undergraduate students and graduate students, and we have postdoctoral scholars mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, faculty at all, like on all levels, and then a whole bunch of staff. And, and so I don't know if it's possible to generalize for the university, but are there particular things for the university that comes out of um, uh, your work or, or, or things that you've read that, I don't know, recommendations or, or maybe oddities that we should be thinking about and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, so I, um, I'll give my advice within consideration of the fact that I'm not yet tenured. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do joke with my students that organizations are some of the most dysfunctional, orga- um, universities are some of the most dysfunctional organizations. Um, people don't tend to treat them as organizations, even though universities are, you know, they're massive organizations. They're often more challenging to navigate because there is no formal hierarchy like there is in a firm. It's always funny when I try to explain how the power hierarchy works at UCSD to my friends who work in a normal company, (laughs) they find it perplexing (laughs) because like within Rady, for example, there isn't a truly formal hierarchy among professors. You have the dean, um, and then you have various levels of deans mm-hmm. and assistant deans and things like that. But then the professors are all just one pool. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you do have status and pay differences among them from you know assistant professor to associate with tenure to full, but there is no direct reporting among professor ranks. And so everything is informal, um, which I would argue makes things like mentorship and sponsorship all that more important because if there are not formal hierarchies, then how to navigate that system becomes more challenging and so you rely on senior leaders to try to help you learn to navigate that. Um, And like, for example, Rady uh, assigns junior faculty members with um, mentors to help them Mm -hmm. do that. And Mm -hmm. I have a great mentor, Pamela Smith, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and she helps me with that. The main thing to take into consideration is because the structure is so unique and so different, we do not have the same luxury to just uh, allow people to figure things out. It's more complicated. So having those conversations with students and junior employees about you know, what they want in this mentorship relationship, how you, the faculty member, can help them achieve their goals, that becomes even more important because mm-hmm. there aren't the same formal channels that they can go through as there isn't someone they automatically report to that they meet once a month. Um, And so I would say becoming uh, more intentional with reaching out to students to see if you can help them, I think, becomes important. So um, we have a question about how race and ethnicity impacts um, misconceptions in the workplace for women. Um, I'm not quite sure what misconception means other than I, I... if I interpret that as biases mm-hmm. and stereotypes, certainly there are, um, you know, stereotypes that women of color uniquely face. So Asian American women face different stereotypes and biases than white women, than African American and black women, um, than women of other races. And so it, that intersectionality makes things more challenging. So what that means is prescriptions that researchers may have identified over the years, um, it's important to take those uh, in context in the sense that you need to look at the sample that they used, um, the experimental stimuli that they used to see um, what was 
how, what was the extent to which this was tested? What are the, we call it the boundary conditions of the effect. Um, for example, some studies use predominantly male samples, or if they're looking at biases, um, they'll use pictures of only white women. That's a problem because then we don't know if the effect extends to women of other races. Um, this is a broader issue that's happened in a lot of fields. Um, I, I actually just became aware of it um, in medicine going back years that there has been a tendency to um, under-research female samples, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to medications, um, yes. and then develop uh, dosages based on exclusively or predominantly male samples without really any knowledge of beyond the um, doctor's best uh, educated yeah. guesses about whether these are the same. Um, and now there's an active pushback against that. So a lot of medical researchers are really actively pushing against that, which is fantastic. Um, and so we need to start questioning what the norm or the prototypical solution is and whether that applies to everyone because it usually does not. Um, and so I would, I would encourage organizations to make sure that they're not introducing policies that only help one form of women or one group of women um, because beyond race, disability status, there's also um, LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. Um, non-binary individuals face very challenging different biases than heterosexual women um, face. There could be barriers that your colleagues or your junior employees are facing that you're not even aware of because perhaps you come from a different set of lived experiences. And so not making those assumptions becomes really important to making sure you're giving people the best mentorship and sponsorship that you can and that they need. So another question is about um, correcting institutional biases. Obviously, that's kind of, I know that your work sort of <laughs> yeah. studies the psychological processes and the micro foundations, so that, that's part of it. But these institutional biases, I know you look at these different hierarchies, so mm-hmm. um, I don't know if there's some some thoughts about that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, whoever asked that, if you want to do research in the area, like, we welcome you. <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah, so, so many questions that can be tested. There's so many uh, potential policies that can be tested. Um, The biggest barrier actually I have found facing is not a shortage of potential ideas, but organizations willing to agree to work with us. Um, Getting an organization Mm. to allow you to run a pilot program, to design a program, to help address a bias that they have in the organization, they're very resistant to it. Mm. Um, My theory is that it's because once they know there's a problem that's documented, they feel there's an obligation to fix Mm. it, which of course they should, (laughs) and they'd rather just not know. (laughs) Um, and so, again, the biggest barrier I see to institutional um, biases is getting those institutions to work with us um, mm. because researchers have ideas and have potential solutions, but there's no way to know what will work until we can start testing them. So there's a question. I don't know if this is related exactly to your work, but I'll, I'll ask anyway. Um, your opinion of the implicit bias test developed at Harvard, do you think it's a good uh, prerequisite for an individual um, before um, taking the implicit um, bias training? We've already discussed sort of some of the issues with implicit bias itself. Does the test help? Yes. Or? So I am familiar with the test. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I would encourage anyone who's interested in looking at the psychometric, you know, properties of the test, meaning, um, you know, what it's 
composed of, like what it is actually testing to look into it. Um, the IAT, what it does is test uh, the speed of associations you have between certain mm. words, certain ideas and pictures, and then the idea that like faster or slower associations can indicate bias based on my understanding. I'm not an expert in the test, so it's likely more nuanced than that. Mm. Um, I would argue that that can give you some information with the caveat that that's a pretty narrow way to test unconscious mm-hmm. bias. And so if you define unconscious bias as speed of associations between two ideas or mm. two words or um, a picture of someone and a word, sure, it can be helpful for that. The problem with the IAT that I see is that it's become used as a tool to diagnose biases mm. um, which I do not think that's what the researchers originally intended it for. I think it's a way to gather information. Um, and perhaps if it helps people acknowledge the fact that we all have implicit biases, mm-hmm. that could be educational because um, it's true. We all have them. Uh, I define the uh, the important thing, I think, is that we do something about it. So it's the choices that you make to try to account for or disrupt the impact of unconscious biases on your decisions. Um, so in terms of helping people be more aware of that reality and accepting their own unconscious biases, perhaps it's helpful. Um, I, I do become concerned of organizations using it as a way to screen people. So somehow you're put in a category of your implicit bias test is you know above this score, so therefore you don't have to take the training. Um, that would really, that's what I, I don't know if that happens. I'm just theorizing that's possible that that would happen. Um, I do not think that that is the intention of the test, nor would it be a productive use of it. Um, the equity and inclusion trainings as if they're effectively designed should be inclusive to everyone. Everyone should be involved. Everyone should have a say. The idea that you could somehow test out of it. Mm really defeats the whole idea of inclusion, in my opinion. Um, That's my personal opinion. Again, I'm, um, anyone watching, I'm not coming after IATs. <laughs> um, I, I, I just do think there are limitations to what it tells us, and so we should be careful about how we apply what it tells us. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because there's a lot of psychological tests that are, they were ad- originally intended for one purpose and mm-hmm. they've been used in a uh, they're yes. being used in a very very different way so i think it's always important to keep that in mind yes. you know I what mean, was the original purpose yeah for we it? see that with even general iq tests and things like mm-hmm. that you know they were designed for one purpose and then now they're being applied for different things and we need to keep in mind of what a test was originally designed for what its purpose was so then we can interpret the information it's telling us accordingly so somebody asked a question. I was thinking about this when, when you were talking about um, institutions not wanting to participate. And so I was wondering, somebody just asked a question about um, whether our institution has approached you at all to um, do any research related to EDI and, um, you know, the, the, some of the best practices and that sort of thing. It's basically um, to, to be a place to, to be studied. No? No. <laughs> well, maybe they will after um, watching this broadcast. <laughs> well, so I think the important difference is UCSD has definitely expressed a commitment to these issues. Mm-hmm, um, the fact that we have several committees that focus on mm-hmm. this, and um, there's even, I like I've spoken to Victor at the Faculty Equity, he's mm-hmm. the EBC of Faculty Equity, and so there are several committees and people uh, in certain positions to make sure that equity and inclusion and their best efforts happen. Um does not mean it always does happen. Um, I do not think 
UCC hasn't given me any data, if that's what they're asking. <laughs> um, there are rules about that, um, that I, you know, whether they would or would not be allowed to release uh, any data to me. Um, but I would always be open to institutions wanting to try to design pilot programs, to implement new policy changes. Um, all of that I would always be open to. <laughs> Sounds like a good place to for maybe students to get involved with research, at least testing yeah. small, you know, small questions, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on um, term limits and m- more frequent turnover in leadership in institutions? Um, and I guess they're asking about like department chairs and things like that. But I guess maybe oh. in general about um, just whether or not leadership turnovers are, you know, helpful, not helpful, or are there any generalizations? Um, oh, that's a broad question. Mm-hmm. Um, when I said department chair turnover, I, uh, I mean, those are they do have limits, I believe. This varies a lot by school and yes, discipline. Yes. Um, so. My experience from Rady will likely be different than someone from a different department. Um, like, I'm not quite sure how it works in STEM fields, things like that. Um, I think department chairs, the issue with that is they're often very heavily saddled. My perception, anyway, I've never served in that position. So my perception is that they're often very heavily saddled with a lot of, uh, you know, guidelines that they have to follow, service requirements, um, and it turns more into herding cats mm-hmm. <laughs> than I think probably what most people in department chair positions would actually like to do with their time. Um, and of course, herding cats is important. You know, we need to get them all somewhere. <laughs> um, and faculty members can be difficult to herd. Um, but I, I do, I do sometimes wish that there was um, more impact that they could have and that I think most of them really want to if they mm-hmm. were given you know the time and the resources available to them um, and so because of the amount of time and service that's required of them I think turnover is necessary mm-hmm. because people can burn out really mm-hmm. quickly yeah um, like we're having turnover at our department or our dean of faculty level which is like our department chair at Rady um, because people they just can't hold that term for very long because yeah. it's, it's very high amount of time commitment. Um, in terms of leadership positions, I think turnover is something that's talked about a lot right now with the great resignation, you know, not too distant past. Mm. Um, and I don't, I can't really speak to whether turnover is good or bad. Um, I would say what I would look to is whether there's a persistent pattern of turnover in your organization. So if you see people leaving all within a certain amount of time, um, that might be some piece of data. So the one issue that I've seen talked about at universities a lot um, is efforts made to recruit um, faculty members that will help increase the diversity uh, of the school, mm-hmm. but then not provide the resources necessary for those faculty members to ultimately be successful in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're recruiting faculty members to create diversity at the faculty level, but then faculty members are leaving and not getting tenured, that's turnover and it speaks to the fact that you're not actually solving the problem. You're just recruiting um, diverse incoming classes um, of faculty members. And so at, a, at another organization, this could look at like you are actively recruiting more female leaders and you hire them, but then they leave every six months. Mm, yeah. If you notice a specific population of leaders that's always leaving after a short amount of time, you could then ask them in exit interviews why that is. And you might learn that there's a common thread 
that ties those together. Um, a lot of organizations don't do exit interviews mm -hmm. at all, which I think is a really missed opportunity. Because there could be a problem that you could easily solve mm -hmm. that you just don't know about. Yeah. Um, but I do know learning that information can be scary and uncomfortable for people. So, <laughs> and we avoid things we find scary and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do like the idea of more exit interviews, and also for retirees, just to check to see because mm -hmm. you don't know, you know, especially if there's, you know, a, a, it, there's a, a tax to leaving early, right? Because you lose certain things, then some people retire out early. So just asking that question to see if you know people are maybe retiring out. Yeah, not because they want to, but because they're not they're not happy. So. Yeah, I think yeah. the larger issue also is if you do this and do it for all cases. Yes. So uh, like selective exit interviews are not going to give you any. Right. It should be a centralized and everyone has the opportunity right. to an opt in sort of thing. Right. Um, I think we're coming to the end of our time. This will be an amazing conversation. I do want to give you just um, the opportunity to leave us with with one takeaway of either something you it could be a call to action, something you'd really like to, st to think about or something you'd like, you know, everyone to do one, maybe one small thing that we could all do to make a difference or think about to make a difference. I would say people who are interested in doing research in this area, we always need um, more young, active minds coming with new solutions, new passion for solving these problems. If you are interested in pursuing this area of research, don't let anyone tell you that you are not ready or not prepared, or if you want to pursue a PhD in this, do it. Um, the field needs more young, mm -hmm. uh, bright minds. And so that I would encourage. Um, for those of you listening who are in leadership positions, um, I would encourage you to make sure you can find a good mentor and sponsor, but that is harder to control. But what you can control is the type of mentor and sponsor you are. Mm -hmm. And so I would take to heart what we talked about of having that conversation with your junior employees on an ongoing basis about what they want to achieve and how you can help them do that and not making assumptions about what it is that they want to achieve in their career.